This is Join the Dots, the podcast about the impacts of everyday choices for our health, wallets and planet. Welcome to our new series, The Mystifying Expertise. While making our regular podcast, we are connecting with experts in many fields, some familiar, some less so. In this series, we'll learn about what they do and how they see the world. Welcome to our latest episode of Join the Dots podcast, Demystifying Expertise series. Our guest today is Susan Gaines, an old friend of mine from grad school, a novelist and sometimes scientist. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm fine. Good to see you, Savina. So I've called you a novelist. How would you describe your field? I'd call myself a novelist, and I often say I'm a lapsed scientist, There's a long story behind my relationship to science and my continued attempt to move away from it (laughs) over my life, (laughs) Uh, So, which is why I I often say I'm a lapsed scientist. Okay, we can explore that as we go along. However, you've also co-authored a book that is, although very lyrical, a nonfiction science book, haven't you? That's true. That was Echoes of Life, what fossil molecules reveal about Earth history. And that was a deviation in my in my self-directed career path. And yes, it's definitely rigorous science. So for the period of time that I was working on that book, close to seven years, I got sucked back into science. And I sort of thought of myself as a an armchair chemist, which I had been accused of being from the time I was a student. I didn't actually like being in the lab that much. So Echoes of Life, I got sucked back into uh, science. And for those seven years, I felt like I was sort of the world expert in organic geochemistry because I was encompassing a lot of knowledge that one wouldn't probably have if one were actually working in the lab doing one single project. So it's interesting that you consider yourself just an armchair scientist, because in my memory in grad school, you love the science, but maybe not the business of science or the the lab work and the politics of academia. And it seems to me there's still a science thread through all your work. So let's talk about your origin story, your educational path. So it's not the typical origin story. Science was not even a blip on the radar when I was growing up. Even in high school, I this was in the 70s, I'm old. So I had like one science class, one biology class where I refused to dissect the frog. I mean, I grew up uh, loving literature and writing. And when I went off to college, though, that wasn't really something you did. And I actually didn't want to do it. I was never super career oriented. I got into a program in natural resources way up in the north end of California in Humboldt State. And I had the idea that it would train me to be a a national park ranger (laughs) because I'd grown up going to the national parks and listening to the naturalists. And I loved the outdoors and I loved bird watching and I thought this would be fun. Well, in the context of that program, I, of course, had to take some science classes and the program itself I found rather boring. I mean, there were a lot of forestry classes, but I took my first chemistry class. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever had to study. (laughs) So part of the issue was that it was a challenge. There were incredibly good professors in the department in this small college I was in, 
which was sort of a world-class chemistry department. So I got gradually sucked into doing science and fell in love with molecules, with organic chemistry. On the one hand, I was really attracted to theory. I was attracted to physical organic chemistry. I loved the math. I loved the abstractness of it. So in that sense, I was an armchair chemist. <laughs> I used to make, I mean, my organic chemistry prof was the first one that called me an armchair chemist because I would, I'd do these horrible experiments in the lab, but I'd make sense of them in my lab notebook. <laughs> so um, I wasn't interested in chemistry as a way of making things. I was interested in chemistry as a way of understanding the natural world. So anyway, that's how I got, I got into chemistry. It was sort of an accident. And going to grad school was also an accident. And when you got there, what happened to change your pathway there? I was too obsessed. On the one hand, obsessed with the project I was working on, but on the other hand, feeling like it wasn't really connected to the natural world that I was interested in. And like, I didn't have time for that. A lot of graduate students go through this. I think your universe is very narrow. Your scientific universe is very narrow. And it was this sort of big pictures that interested me. And, and of course, the other thing was that, yeah, I wanted a life and I didn't want to teach. I was interested in research. And I realized that practically speaking, what kind of career are you going to have? So I just sort of announced, okay, I'm going to run off and be a writer, which was, you know, in hindsight, a fairly radical thing to do because, of course, I didn't have any income. Um, <laughs> details. <laughs> yeah, details. What happened next? Did you just write? I at first thought that it was all or nothing. So I completely divorced myself from science and took jobs that had as little conflicting demands intellectually as possible. Actually, the first day job I found, I went off to Japan and taught English for a year and started teaching myself to write and writing my first short stories, which had very little to do with science. Then I came back to U.S. and again, took up uh, a lot of different day jobs. I worked in a on a farm in an apple nursery. I taught English to Mexican farm workers. I worked in a library. So the constant struggle was always finding time to write while keeping the rent paid. But I didn't think I was writing about science. I mean, my stories in those days were a lot about human beings' relationship to the natural world. And because of my training, I see nature through a scientific lens often. And that started sneaking into, into some of my writing. So I wrote a first novel that didn't have anything to do with science and didn't get it published. It's in the graveyard of first unpublished novels, which um, many writers have. And when I started the next novel, I all of a sudden had this idea that I wanted to write about a chemist. I wanted to write about a character who saw the world through a molecular lens. And I wanted to write about chemistry as a way of understanding the world rather than as a way of fabricating the world and changing the world. Uh, so that was my initial impetus for the book that later became Carbon Dreams. Now, Carbon Dreams is interesting because you are very groundbreaking as far as I'm aware. It's the first work of literature that explores concepts of climate change do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I was not too deeply into the novel when I, I started realizing that it was something of an experiment. I couldn't find a lot of models for what I was doing. I 
wove a scientific research experiment into the plot of the novel. As you said, it was one of the earliest, really the first, that addressed the science of climate change. That became a, a major theme in the book. And yeah, when it first came out, people were calling it a new genre. They were calling it science in fiction as opposed to science fiction. And that was a term that had actually been coined a few years earlier by Carl Gerasi, the inventor of the birth control pill, who had taken up writing novels in his retirement. And his novels were more about the culture of science and about competition and egos and ethics. So I wasn't always happy with the comparison because I felt like what I was doing in Carbon Dreams was putting abstract knowledge at the core of the novel. So you had to engage with the chemistry in order to understand the novel. And my basic concept was, why not? You know, we have politics at the center of novels. We have philosophy. And science is one of the most important aspects of contemporary society. So why aren't we writing literature about it? So that was sort of the concept behind the book. And as I said, I couldn't find a lot of models for what I was doing while I was writing it. I found my models in books that some of you may know, A.S. Byatt's Possession. And it's about literary scholars. And yet it did something similar to what I wanted to do with the chemistry in Carbon Dreams. Um, there was another one by Norm Rush, uh, Mating, and it's about anthropologists. And it also dug into the knowledge and the characters. These are books about characters' relationships to abstract knowledge. In recent years, uh, my friend Jean Hegland, another novelist, and I have started calling them nerd novels because they don't necessarily have to be about science. That said, in the last... 20 years, novels about scientist characters have become more and more common. And Ginny Roan, who's a British cell biologist and a novelist herself, started calling them lablet. And lablet novels, I think, are often more about the culture of science, but they're about fully drawn scientist characters. So what brought you to Germany, where you are now? Okay, that's another accidental story. <laughs> um, Carmen Dreams was published by a small literary press and was sort of trickling out in the world the way that novels published by small literary presses do. But it was kind of a cult hit among scientists. It got more attention in scientific media than it did in the literary media. And I started getting requests to give readings and talks at scientific institutes and in geology departments. And I, I mean, I said yes to anything that offered to pay my, my way. And I got a request to give a talk at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, where Carbon Dreams actually ends. And the last scene of Carbon Dreams takes place there. I'd never been there. So I went. It was great fun. And it was really interesting to hear from the scientist's reaction to the book. And while I was there, the person who was behind inviting me there turned out to be Jeff Eglinton. Jeff Eglinton was, was sort of the grandfather of organic geochemistry, the field that I wrote about in Carbon Dreams. And I had used, <laughs> I had used some of his scientific papers in the novel. Uh, I had never met him or talked to him. I had just read these papers and become fascinated. And so I had adopted that research and woven it into the story in Carbon Dreams the book had been making its way among scientists, especially organic geochemists and oceanographers, and and it came into his hands, and he told me later that the hair stood up on the back of his neck because it was as if I had been in his lab when they were making these discoveries, and I had just, of course, imagined all this. 
So anyway, Jeff, you know, loved this book and suddenly decided that I should write a popular science book about organic geochemistry. So he started nagging me to do this. He said, wow, you know, you can you can really bring across the thrill of doing science. And he kept pestering me. So I said, if writing this book would pay me enough to pay for the novel I'm working on, I might consider doing it. And then I suddenly got an invitation to Germany, to the Hansa Institute for Advanced Study, with an offer of a fellowship to write a book. So I said yes, and invented the book that would become Echoes of Life. It's a very beautiful book. But you eventually made a home for yourself in Germany and again got involved in science and fiction. Do you want to tell us a little about that? There were a couple of years where I was sort of commuting between Germany, Uruguay, and my original home in California off, off and on. And it took me a lot longer to finish Echoes of Life than, of course, I had initially planned and and was funded for. Uh, so I stayed on to finish the book and I fell in love with a German professor. <laughs> so that also kept me in Germany. So when Echoes of Life was finished, I returned to the novel that I had started so many years ago and picked up work on it. And, and I was again patching together an income from translating and all kinds of different odd editing jobs. And I had the idea that the Institute for Advanced Study, where I had written this nonfiction science book, would have actually been the perfect place to have written Carbon Dreams or my current science novel. You were surrounded by scientists from all different fields. You live at the Institute. So I went back and tried to talk them into starting a fellowship program for novelists who were working with science in their fiction and needed to be in contact with research scientists. And it was, of course, a ploy to support my own work, <laughs> but it, it turned into a, um, it, we needed funding. And in the German academic system, the arts aren't funded in and of themselves. They're a separate, it's a separate system. So I got talked into writing a grant proposal. So I put together a group that we call Fiction Meets Science, and we got some funding from the Volkswagen Foundation. When I first wrote the first grant and said, oh, there's this trend, there's a new way of dealing with science and literature, and it has a lot to tell us about science and society, I thought I was sort of bullshitting for the sake of the grant. But over the years, I have seen that it's actually true. So how much did your program arrive at the right time and place, and how much has it helped nurture and expand that trend, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. I think it was a response to the trend, but we have in, a, in our small way uh, nurtured it because we do have fellowships for novelists who are writing these books. We only have one or two a year. Uh, we certainly contributed in the academic world to attention to this contemporary literature. Humanities scholars had been looking at the relationships between science and literature for a long time historically, but they hadn't really been looking at this very direct relationship of novelists actually responding to science in the world. We would have thought that this trend would have started in the early 20th century. And the sociologists have theories about the relationship between the public and science that deterred that from happening. Science was sort of in this black box that we thought we couldn't understand as just regular citizens. And now we've been opening up that box and looking inside. That seems a little strange right now because this past year, science has been so center stage, but now finally it's at the dinner table. <laughs> 
Well, to a certain extent, but we have that pushback against climate change, against science, this science denialism where people that think everything's political and they can choose to believe what they want. Do you think that literature and the sort of work you do has a role to play in that arena? It's ironic that at the same time that we see at one level, a new scientific literacy that allows people to engage with this literature. And on the other hand, we see these huge anti-science movements in the U.S. and also in the U.K. On the one hand, I think literature has a role to play or I wouldn't do what I do. On the other hand, I have to be honest and say that the audience for my books and the audience for a lot of these literary novels is not the masses. I have mixed feelings about literature being used as a form of activism. It's a little bit antithetical to the art of the novel to be didactic, which isn't to say that we don't have something to say, but we better well hide it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I would like to be a cheerleader for this literature. On the other hand, quite honestly, as a novelist, I think we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful also when we think about, we're talking about fiction here and people don't need to know how to read it. So if I think about the novel that probably had the largest impact on public thinking about climate change, it would be Michael Crichton's Horrible State of Fear, (laughs) which was definitely a science novel and portrayed itself as science in fiction with a lot of false knowledge. He was invited to speak in Congress. So the whole thing can backfire quite a bit. So tell me about your latest novel. It launched and you were starting your book tour just when we all started lockdown. So your your launch suffered COVID interruptus. But the novel's out there. What's it about? Thank you for asking. I wanted to get to accidentals because I'm very proud of this book and I love it. And it's trickling out into the world. I didn't think of accidentals as a science novel when I first started it. I thought (laughs) again, okay, I'm done with chemistry. But the science sort of snuck in there again. So Accidental is the story of, a, of an Uruguayan-American family. Um, it's told from the point of view of a young man in his early 20s who's grown up in California and has a very strong connection to nature. He's a bird watcher. And his mother, who's Uruguayan, decides to unimmigrate. She's a little bit crazy. She decides to go back to Uruguay after 30 years in California and talks him into going with her for what he thinks is a couple months So the novel then follows the story of the family's feud over how to manage their land that they've inherited and his own transformation in terms of how he thinks about nature. It's set at the turn of the millennium. And so basically, Gabriel is coming to terms with the idea of the end of nature. One of the themes that runs through this book is the idea of managed nature and wildlife. I should also say there's a whole political backstory set in the 1970s about Gabriel's family and how they all dealt with the horrendous dictatorship in Uruguay in the 70s. And on a larger scale, the nexus between dealing with environmental problems and just when we're ready to start dealing with these environmental problems, some more immediate catastrophe, which, for example, we're living right now, all resources are trained on that problem. So those are some of the kinds of environmental themes that run throughout the book that some of your listeners might be interested in. I loved how you described the bird watching and the dilemma of the bird he discovers. But your love interest or Gabrielle's love interest is also a scientist. 
And that scientist was a little bit more like your scientist in Carbon Dreams and the way her research was explained in the dialogue without getting too sciencey. Finding that balance of explaining to the reader without making them feel like they're in a lecture. How do you find that line? Yeah, that's one of the challenges of writing these kinds of novels. And it's it's been very interesting to work with the literary scholars in Fiction Meets Science because that's the kind of thing they look at in our books. They figure out what did these novelists do? How do they explain the science? And so one of the things they found and one of the things I used in both of my books was you surround your scientist characters with non-scientists or with scientists from different fields So the moment they're talking about any of these ideas, there has to be some level of explanation within these conversations. And you have to be careful or it turns into a talking head. So Gabriel, yeah, Gabriel falls in love with an Uruguayan microbiologist who's doing a study in the rice fields at the neighboring Estancia. And that part of the novel actually grew a lot during the years when I was not working on on accidentals when I was at the Hansa Institute for Advanced Study because there were a couple of microbiologists there that really inspired me. The other interesting play there that I wanted to juxtapose was Gabriel's feeling of natural history and the difference between the way he observes as a non-scientist who's very in tune with, I mean, he knows a lot about birds, right? I tried to keep the molecules to a, a minimum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked it. So what's next for you? I'm sort of working on a new book. It seems to be another science novel. Um, I've given up. <laughs> I've given up trying to get a divorce from science. <laughs> I, was like, I said, okay, this is what I do. And also, unfortunately, it seems to be another of these long, complex books that's going to take me many, many years to research. And I'm not really willing to say more about it than that at the moment because it's such a mess still. <laughs> um, is there one thing that works for you well when you think about your worldview or your way of thinking that would also help others? It's a constant struggle for myself as a writer, and I know this is true for a lot of writers, to justify what we do in the world. I mean, I can be idealistic about it, and I certainly think we need literature. I certainly think we need the kind of literature that I write, that we need to step back, and it gives us a way of thinking about the world and stories of making sense of it. Because, I mean, if you look at real life doesn't make sense, but we try to make sense of it. And that's what you can do in a novel. You can take one aspect and try to make sense of it. Thanks very much, Susan. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me, Sabina. And thanks to our audience for listening. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Tara Uygur on podcast production and Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. Listener.